Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January 10th, 2020. This is episode 2578 of the Survival Podcast, and it is... Friday, Friday, Friday. Yep, it is Friday, Friday, Friday. It is time for the Expert Council Q&A show. Here's what I've got on the docket for you today. We're going to start out with a quote of the day uh, that I'll cover, like I always do, uh, by Polybus. Polybus was a historian in uh, the Roman Empire, born around 200 B.C. It's the best guess anyway. And it will pertain to all of the crap going on in Iran, Iraq, the Middle East, with this Soleimani being assassinated that you guys have been freaking out and asking me about. And I've ignored, because I largely ignore politics anymore. But I will tell you what this was all really all about, and why it's not a conspiracy theory, and why it's all real, and it's also fake at the exact same time. And Polybus, all the way back over 2,200 years ago, uh, well, I guess it was a little closer to us than now, because, well... Uh, yeah, about 2,200 years. Uh, did, uh, did he already, you know, could have told you this is how things go? All right. And next, uh, Doc Bones will cover for you COPD. Somebody having a COPD uh, episode, especially uh, when you cannot get them higher level medical help for whatever reason, whether it's long term or even short term, it doesn't matter. Uh, Derek Bonpietro will talk about vehicle maintenance on a used vehicle recently purchased, approaching the 50,000-mile mark. How about developing a patina on a carbon steel knife? And I'm going to say any tool, because everything Patrick Rorman is going to tell you about doing that and why you would do it applies not just to knives, but any carbon steel tool uh, can be a very valuable thing to do. And guarding against the dreaded dun-dun-dun impulse buy. Gary Collins has a checklist for you to help you keep from making bad impulse buys and having buyer's remorse and looking around your house one day and go, where did all this crap that I never used come from and where's all the money that went into it? Uh, Michael Jordan will kind of help you the same way because if you want to get into beekeeping, you can find out that it can get expensive fast. So what are the 10 tools that are actually essential for a new beekeeper? Michael Jordan will cover that today. And John Pugliano is combining two questions. Usually he combines two questions that kind of go together today. He's combining choosing a career for the young in a more holistic way than every child should go to college, along with investing for those nearing retirement, 50-plus years old, um, kind of looking to be a little more conservative, or maybe do I need to be more aggressive, what's going on in the market right now, that type of thing. And then I got a question on Kratky Hydroponics. A uh, guy wants to get into doing it and is thinking a lot like I am in some ways about the combination of something like deep water recirculating to make life easier along with Kratky. And I'll tell you why that kind of already is what it is, how that might be done, and another low-tech solution uh, from Dr. Kratky himself if you want to get into Kratky hydroponics. So we will entertain you today with a diverse array of subjects. Starting out, though, let's, let's talk the only real political stuff we're going to talk about today comes from this quote by Polybus. And I actually shared this quote on the air uh, quite a long time ago because it is so succinct in understanding the state, its systems, the media that goes along with it, etc. And again, this gentleman was born about 2200 B.C., so you know, somewhere in the mid-2100 B.C. time is when this was actually penned and said. 
Polly was said of the mob, meaning the crowd, meaning the people, meaning the population. You can substitute anything you want in that. You can change the mob in this quote to the American people are instead of the mob is. But his original quote was, the mob is easily led and may be moved by the smallest force so that its agitations have a wonderful resemblance to those of the sea. And before I explain to you what's going on, please understand that that mob can be the American people, can be the Iraqi people, can be the Iranian people, can be the Saudi Arabian people. It can be any group of people anywhere. So if you've been, if you've been living under a rock, you may not know recently what happened. There was, if we go back to the beginning of the most recent phase of crap in the Middle East, which before I go any further, let me say, if I were President of the United States, there wouldn't be a single U.S. troop in the Middle East tomorrow morning. Okay? So nothing I'm about to say is an advocation for anything. It's not even against anything. I'm telling you what happened, why, and my assessment of it. So back in December, there was an attack, wounded some U.S. soldiers, and killed a contractor, a U.S. citizen. Uh, Trump had drawn a line of sense that if you kill a U.S. citizen, there's going to be consequences, with no real indication of exactly what those consequences would be. Would that be full-scale bombing of the entire country of Iran? Would it be sinking their navy like Reagan did? No one really knew. Okay? Now, then the Iranians, through proxies, and this is what happened. I don't care what kind of foil hat site you're, you're, you're looking at. You could say whether it's justified or not, or what you would do. I, this is, again, I'm the weatherman here. Okay, the Iranians, through their proxies, fermented an attack on our embassy in Iraq, uh, i.e. Baghazi 2.0 if it's not handled right. The orange man, to his credit, again, I wouldn't have anybody there, but if you do have people, you defend them. Sent the paratroopers and the Marines, and that shit all cleared out. Right after that all cleared out, U.S. intelligence identifies that an Iranian general named Soleimani is near the Baghdad airport in Iraq. Now, to give, a f again, this is not an advocation, but this is fact. Soleimani was designated a terrorist by George Bush, redesignated a terrorist by bin, uh, 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 Barack Obama, and was ordered by the United Nations not to travel outside of Iran. Okay, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that is the, 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 the reality. Soleimani was the head of multiple militias fighting as Iranian proxies. Now, to be fair to the other side, which included fighting at our side, just like our Kurdish allies did against ISIS in Syria. This is just the, the most strange bedfellows in the world exist in the Middle East. But this guy was most likely responsible for orchestration of the attack on our embassy, which, under the international rules of war, is an act of war. You don't F with an embassy. The embassy's purpose is to be in a place where if, those two, if the two countries are at war and I am your enemy at war, my embassy inside your country is still a safe place so that a dialogue can exist between the two nations. That's why it's supposed to be there. So no matter what, you don't F with an embassy, and if you are the host nation, you don't let anybody F with the embassy, which both of those things went the other way. So now, this is the, the part where we get to how we move the mob, and we're going to switch back to the other side of this. U.S. 
support, meaning people, not government, U.S. support for maintaining our presence in Iraq and Afghanistan as of three weeks ago was at an all-time low. There were more people in this country than ever since the whole thing started that if you said, should we get out of Iraq and Afghanistan, we're willing to say yes. And we mean 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That number skyrocketed. It had to do with a lot of things. It had to do with the Afghanistan papers, and most people have not even read or looked into them, but they've heard of them. They've heard of them. And could remember, there's a segment of people that have said that forever, like me. We shouldn't be there. But they, So you only have to move so much of the mob over into that camp before it's a massive majority that says, get out. So everybody's like starting to get tired of it. That's the other side. Everybody's getting tired of it. Everybody's getting weary of it. We've been there for two decades. You know what? If they can't stand on their own, now they can't stand on their own. The argument from the government is like, that. if we leave, it'll be, it'll, it'll be a cascading effect of it. And you know what it sounds exactly like if you're a little bit older? The domino theory that got us hooked up into Vietnam and, 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 and took over almost 60,000 lives from us. And billions at the time that are equivalent to the trillions a day that we're losing in the Middle East and Afghanistan for no gain, for no benefit for the American people. So everybody sways over to that. Then all this shit happens. Yes, precipitated by Iran. Iran's not in on it. It's not a backdoor conspiracy theory. And the United States legitimately is going, well, what do we do about this? The deep state who work for Trump against and for Trump. That's how deep states work. Has this plan to get this guy for a long time. Bush and Obama both passed up on it. They present the plan. And it's ideal to be able to do this. Um, I think it was Geraldo Rivera. It was somebody that said, well, I'm a, a senator or a congressman. It might have been smarter to say this. This was a terrible plan executed brilliantly. And it was. Because the plan was sway the mob. Renew support in America for remaining in the Middle East with our troops. That was the plan. And here's how it works. You take out Soleimani. You know the Iranians are going to do something. And you know they're not going to do much. And I said right from the beginning, Iran won't do jack shit. And I had a bunch of people take exception. I said, I want to be clear. I don't mean nothing at all. I mean nothing of significance. We're not going to go and be Shut up, you sound stupid, you're being manipulated by the wave of a hand like the sea. Right? So, all of a sudden, a couple of days or three days later, Iran launches some missiles. They suck ass. And let me tell you something. If Iran wants to hit a target inside Iraq with the missiles they have, they can hit it at least 50% of the time. Like half can hit dead on where they, they hit exactly where they were supposed to. Nowhere important. The Iranian government is on the edge of falling apart. That doesn't mean everything will be sunshines and roses. If it does, some other totalitarian will take over if it falls apart. Don't get that wrong. But it's on the edge. In the Arabic culture, saving face is everything. There is no way they could do nothing. There's no way they could do nothing. Our government already knew this. Their government knows we know this. I guarantee you, there was back-channel discussion. Hey, we're going to do this. We have to do this. Yeah, we know. Don't kill any Americans. So they basically set off a fireworks display, say it's a slap in the American face, and we're done. While this was all going on, Russia, playing its part, 
comes in and says, hey, you know what, Iraq? You guys said you want the Americans out. Um, if they leave and you don't have security, we'll come in and provide security. Then the media goes nuts. Putin's going to take over the Middle East. And now Americans who three weeks ago were like, man, we're just, we just got to get out. We can't leave. We can't leave. That's all it was ever about. Now, you can even believe that Trump felt this was a good, strong move to shore up his position and blah, 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 blah. But the president doesn't go, hey, hey, get me a general to assassinate. The president says, every president, not just Trump, the president says, okay, we got to do something. What are my options? And then warmongering screwbags, I wanted to say the F word with an S at the end of it, all right, but I, I censored myself, come to him and say, we can blow this up, we can kill this guy, we can do this, we can do all scale. They present him a, 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 a portfolio of options. And they usually say, this is the one we most recommend, Dark Lord. Please, let's do this thing. And they know what they're doing. In this case, specifically, they know what they're doing. We have to drum up support to keep our troops in the Middle East because we're losing support of the population. And this is the best move. Because from the moment they made that move, all of this hysteria about, it's dangerous, we don't know what's going to happen. They knew precisely what was going to happen. Now, I don't mean they precisely knew that Iran would shoot 17 missiles, half of which wouldn't even get to where they were going at the specific two places they did in a specific manner and what they did at the specific time. Not that level of conspiracy theory. They knew there would be a token response that would fall short of something giving the United States an excuse to bomb them into the Stone Age. They knew that. They knew that it would cause... A, res a response by a, a significant portion of the Iraq government saying that we should leave, and they knew that would precipitate Russian involvement in saying, hey, we got this if they don't. Because those things, it, this is like there's certain moves in a game of chess, even though the game's real, that if I'm a good chess player, based on the position that the other person has on the board, if I make a specific move, there are only certain things that can happen, and some of those things have to happen. It's not conspiracy. It's, it's not the plan. It is the situation dictates at this point that if we make this move, these things will happen at a probability of 98%. Let's present this to the orange man and get him to bomb this guy who we want dead anyway. That's what happened. And the mob, through the use of one drone and some hellfires, was easily led and moved by the smallest force so that its agitations now have the wonderful resemblance of those of the sea. And people who had come to their effing senses now say, oh, oh, we can't leave. We can't leave. And when I knew they had orchestrated it perfectly was when I started seeing the extreme right wing blow everything up, retards on Facebook, claiming victory... After the Iranians shot missiles at us, and we said we would not do anything. I saw cheering. I, I guess that the, the threat of the Marines and the paratroopers will quell their further aggression or whatever. Like, so it started out when they, when it first happened, and people were saying we had to leave, they said, ah, we, and you could tell basically the argument was we can't leave and let them get the last punch. 
But when we said we're not going to do anything, we're not going to leave, then it went to, we won. We won. Now, again, this is not for or against anything. You give it to me, you make me your president, which is not going to happen, though I am running for president in 2020. I am, for real. I am just waiting for somebody, Miss Sauce, you know who you are, to finish my website before we go out in earnest with the campaign of don't vote for me. But if you, if you, if like enough people, uh, got their brains uh, damaged and decided that Jack Spirico should be president of the United States, on day one, I would say give me a 60 day plan to have every single troop out of the Middle East and everywhere else. And when they say, well, that's not enough time. Yes, it is. I'm being generous. Because when you give me a 60 day plan, I'm going to look at it. And I'm going to probably tell you to pare it down to 30. Get your ass moving. I want it in 24 hours. So that's me. So don't think anything is supporting anything. I'm just telling you what they did. They took an American public weary of two decades of pointless war and sold them on another two or three years before they got to do it again. We got to stay because Putin's going to come take over the area. The whole thing's going to fall apart. Ah! Listen, the Sunni and the Shia have been trying to kill each other. For 1,300 years, they've been fighting for control of the area. We cut the place up. These nations aren't even real nations. We made them after World War II. We just decided, here's where borders go. Imagine if there was a great big war in the United States, and we were not the dominant big dick in the room like we are. And some other big dicks came in and fought the battle right in our backyard. And when it was all over, they said, Georgia and Florida and Alabama are now a country. Texas and Mexico are now a country. Washington and, and, and British Columbia and Alberta are now a country because we say so. Alaska is now part of Russia because we say so. Then throw on top of it deep-seated, long-term religious tribalism and deep-seated hatred of both sides for atrocities by both sides if that had been going on on top of it, and how would that work out? And would you do that? Well, guess what? It's what we did. And then we screwed with what we did. Then we screwed with what we did by toppling people we didn't like in democratic systems we set up to install the puppets we wanted. That's what happened there. So now we got to move the crowd. So there you go. That's long for a quote of the day, but uh, that's what happened. If you've been wondering why, why this all happened, it wasn't for World War III. It wasn't because Trump wants to start a war with Iran. There's going to be no war with Iran. We're not going to bomb Iran. Iran will not take the steps. It's to take you and make you think we got to do this. And I know you're going, well, Jack, I, I don't think that. Yeah, talk to your neighbors. Let's go on with something better. Uh, COPD without higher medical assistance from Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. Together with my wife, Nurse Amy Alton, we are the authors of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its third edition. Also, our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide, and the designers of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Evelyn, who writes, Doc Bones, how would you help a patient during an exacerbation of COPD in a no-help-coming situation? Is it possible to help them? From Evelyn on Facebook. Evelyn, I often get questions about conditions that have a clear path to proper diagnosis and various options regarding modern therapies. That's great in modern times, but off the grid, many of these options don't exist. And those that have lost, for example, lung or heart function due to chronic disease 
have some problems to deal with. Take someone with a history of a heart attack. In this serious event, a portion of heart muscle has died due to blocked arteries. You don't grow this muscle back and it leaves you with less capacity to function in good times or bad. It certainly would affect your ability to perform activities of daily survival, you would think. You could say the same thing for chronic lung disease like COPD. COPD stands for Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. And that's a chronic inflammatory lung problem that causes decreased flow of air and thus oxygen to the body. Symptoms include breathing difficulty, cough, mucus production, and wheezing. It's caused by long-term exposure to irritating gases or particulate matter, well, most often from cigarette smoke. People with COPD are at increased risk for developing heart disease, lung cancer, and a variety of other conditions. Emphysema and chronic bronchitis are the two most common consequences that you'll see. Chronic bronchitis is an inflammation of the lining of the bronchial tubes, which carry air to and from the air sacs, called alveoli, in the lungs. It's characterized by a daily cough and mucus production for at least three months every year. Emphysema is a condition in which the alveoli at the end of the smallest air passages of the lungs are destroyed, leaving blank spaces. These blank spaces don't function at all to absorb oxygen into your body. Signs and symptoms of CPD are most obvious after about the age of 40, and they include, as I mentioned before, daily cough with mucus that may be anywhere from clear to white to yellow to even greenish maybe, shortness of breath, especially during physical activities, wheezing, chest tightness, having to clear your throat upon waking up due to a lot of mucus in your lungs, and later on, as the condition progresses, and it is a progressive disease, you may notice frequent respiratory infections, a lack of energy, and unintended weight loss, especially in the later stages. You might notice swelling in the ankles, feet, or legs. And you may notice blueness of the lips or fingernail beds caused by a lack of oxygen known as cyanosis. COPD symptoms often don't appear until after significant lung damage has occurred. And they usually worsen over time, particularly if you still smoke. People with COPD are also likely to experience episodes during which their symptoms become worse than usual day-to-day -day variation with persistence for at least several days. You might be skeptical about smoking causing certain health issues, but it's pretty well established that the main cause of COPD in developed countries is indeed smoking tobacco. Having said that, only about 20 to 30% of chronic smokers may develop physical ailments due to COPD. That doesn't mean their lungs haven't been affected, just that it doesn't seem to affect their ability to function, at least now. In underdeveloped countries, COPD often occurs in people exposed to all sorts of noxious fumes from, let's say, burning fuel for cooking or heating in poorly ventilated homes. This is a similar situation to which we might experience if we're knocked off the grid due to some long-term disaster. In about 1% of people with COPD, the disease results from a genetic disorder that causes low levels of a protein called alpha-1 antitrypsin. In any case, the treatment is the same. COPD can cause many complications, including respiratory infections. You're more likely to catch colds, the flu, pneumonia. Any respiratory infection can make it more difficult to breathe and cause further damage to lung tissue. 
heart problems, for some reasons that aren't really well understood, it can increase your risk for heart disease, including heart attacks. Lung cancer, people with COPD do have a higher risk for developing lung cancer. Maybe that's due to smoking. High blood pressure in lung arteries. COPD can cause high blood pressure in the arteries that actually bring blood to your lungs. That's called pulmonary hypertension, and it is a major health issue. And some people actually may become depressed. Difficulty breathing can keep you from really doing activities that you enjoy or that you have to do. And after dealing with, well, any kind of serious illness, people sometimes develop depression. So this is something that you may experience. Now, unlike some diseases, COPD has a clear cause and a clear path to prevention. The majority of cases are directly related to cigarette smoking. The best way to prevent COPD is to never smoke or at least to stop smoking right now. Occupational hazard to chemical fumes and dust, another risk factor. If you work with this type of lung irritation, you have to make sure that there are ways to protect yourself, such as using respiratory protective equipment. That's important. There are tests for COPD, but they usually include chest x-rays and CAT scans of the chest. Most of these aren't options off the grid, but you can test lung function with a simple piece of equipment called an inspirometer, which gives an idea of how deep a breath you can take, and it can measure progress or deterioration over time. A simple battery-powered item called a pulse oximeter can measure how saturated your blood is with oxygen. The higher, the better. Most people are in the high 90s or even 100% in some situations. In normal times, COPD is indeed treatable. With proper management, most people with COPD can achieve pretty good symptom control, have a good quality of life, as well as a reduced risk of other complications. Although you may run out of inhalers and prescription drugs that open airways in survival settings, you can still possibly help yourself. Of course, the first thing is to stop smoking. You probably won't have access to cigarettes anyhow. They're manufactured, and in a survival situation, they won't be. It's the only way, really, to keep COPD from getting worse, in smokers at least, and reduce your ability to breathe. It's not easy, though. You may need to use some nicotine replacement products If you can't go cold turkey, whatever you do, get off cigarettes before the you-know-what hits the fan. Once that happens, your lack of stamina is definitely going to show. Of course, some hospitals have pulmonary rehab. That's in normal times, but the results for significant disease do vary. They sure won't help much if you're off the grid, and of course, there won't be hospitals at that point. That means if you already have COPD, that you've got a stockpile Medicines, things like inhalers, which will lose potency over time, and maybe oral meds like steroids that could last longer. Having a supply of oxygen canisters may be useful, but if you're at the point that you need it daily, it's not going to last very long. And people with severe cases of COPD, well, they will be in trouble. One inexpensive med you might be able to stockpile, if you have a sympathetic physician, that is, is theophylline, an old asthma drug. Coffee or the caffeine in it is actually pretty similar from a chemical standpoint. Antibiotics, which I talk about in our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, should also be accumulated as COPD patients have a tendency to be prone to infections, especially lung infections. Remember that antibiotics only work against bacterial infections, though, not viruses. Other strategies include staying well hydrated, controlled coughing, humidifiers, light exercise, and more. We can talk about that at a future time in more detail. You may have your opinions about vaccines, but you know what? They're probably a good idea in people at risk from lung complications like the COPD sufferer.
This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to fill those holes in your medical storage by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of health savings account eligible medical kits or some of the books and individual supplies we have at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Next up, let's say that you bought a, a, a new vehicle in, in really good condition, had all the maintenance done on it, but it's, it's coming up on that 50,000-mile mark. Um, what type of maintenance should you be doing to make sure you get the most out of that new purchase? With that, Derek Bon Pietro has some ideas. Happy New Year, TSP listeners. This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. Got a question from Bryce about vehicle maintenance. Question, what maintenance should I be planning for the 50,000-mile mark? Details, I just recently purchased a used 2015 Jeep Wrangler JK, which had roughly 44,500 miles when I bought it. All the maintenance had been performed at the dealership where I made the purchase and all documented on the Carfax report. I am getting ready to turn the 50,000-mile mark and was wondering what maintenance I should perform other than the normal oil change and air filter. Should I replace the spark plugs and wires, belts, transmission, and differential fluids, etc.? Thank you in advance for your help and all you do for the show and producing an amazing show for Jack. Well, Bryce, let's dig into the Jeep JK. Now, any kind of maintenance schedule, which is what the manufacturer is going to recommend as far as doing fluids and spark plugs and things like that on the vehicle, you can find those in a schedule, uh, typically as far as what kind of miles or time intervals. And you get that in your owner's manual. And if you don't have an owner's manual in the glove box, you can always Google it online. So, for example, since I don't have his paperwork for a Jeep JK in front of me, Mopar.com, because his vehicle is owned by Chrysler, and Chrysler uses Mopar for a lot of their accessories and things like that. So, Mopar.com was able to grab his uh, schedule for maintenance, and I'm going through it right now looking at what Chrysler wants to see done on these Jeep JKs. So a lot of the fluids on this Jeep JK are not going to be done till about 60,000 miles. So that's your axles, transfer case for the four-wheel drive, and the transmission. Spark plugs and the coolant are good for 100,000 miles. So you're still good to go as far as the maintenance is concerned. Now, I always take that with a grain of salt. Fluids are cheap. It's cheap insurance to make sure that everything's still working on the vehicle. We don't want to have any harsh contaminants in any kind of fluid for a vehicle because that can really degrade the life. So I tend to cut those recommendations in half, especially since I do them myself. I can save a little bit of money. I think the average person for the average type of vehicle can probably change their fluids out. So if this kind of fits your bill, I'd cut them in half and maybe do them at 30000 Now, since you didn't own the vehicle around 30000 and they certainly were not done by a dealership at that kind of mileage level unless they were specially requested, just probably skip it and change them out at sixty. It's not a big deal. It's more preventative and over-the-top maintenance. So wait around to the 60,000-mile mark and change those fluids out. Now, having said that, those spark plugs, they're good for 100,000 miles. I would change them at fifty, regardless. When a spark plug's in an engine for 100,000 miles, typically what happens is that they're going to fight you on the way out. Once they've been in there for that kind of time frame, when they come out, they typically want to pull threads with them or snap just from age. So one of the biggest things is even if they can go 100,000 miles without wearing out, still take them out. Change them out. Little anti-seize on the thread doesn't hurt. Put them back in, and you know that the spark plugs won't snap. Fords have a lot of problems with these. The Tacoma I bought are known for stripping threads or really giving people problems. So get them out early and have some fresh ones put in. Not a lot of money here. The coolant being good for 100,000 miles is probably okay, but I've read a lot of these JKs had some head issues 
in their early production, which shouldn't affect your model. But I've also read a lot of people are having water pump and radiator failures around the 40, 50,000 mile mark and repeated failures after that. So I don't know if they just have a bad production run of parts or if it's possibly contaminated coolant causing these problems. But I would replace that knowing that that antifreeze could possibly be troublesome. I would do that ahead of the game anyway. As far as like belts and hoses and those type of wear items, I wouldn't replace them unless they really need to be replaced. Uh, sure, you can throw a new belt on there at 50000 It's not going to be big money. And you can always keep the spare in a little toolbox or something if you're into that kind of thing. Not going to hurt it, but I wouldn't necessarily chase after it. If it looks good, probably just keep running it. When you're in there doing, consider it to be a major service around that 50 to 60,000 mile mark, I would be looking for coolant leaks on the engine from a gasket surface or the water pump or anything like that. I'd be pretty thorough around that 50 to 60,000 mile range. It's not going to hurt to get in there and check things out early. Jack the vehicle up, pop the hood, go from one end to the other, and just have the peace of mind that everything looks good, everything's tight. And even if you don't have to do it at the 50,000 mile, just get it done and you know you're good for another year or two depending on how often you drive this thing. If you're going to change the fluids out yourself, it's very easy on a Jeep JK. For the axles, they're going to be a basic drain and fill. Okay, We want to pay attention to the type of oil that we're using because we're going to use traditional gear lube. It says the specifications right in the manual. But if you happen to have a model that has a limited slip rear differential that isn't a Rubicon, you're going to want to have a gear lube that uses a friction modifier for the limited slip. So you may need to purchase an additive over the counter that's going to keep that axle from chattering after a while. Another quick tip is that if you're going to change this fluid out, you don't necessarily have to pull the covers off of the axles to drain them out. Sure, that's the best practice, but it's really time-consuming consuming and a, and a dirty job. A quick tip is that basically you can pump the old oil out of the axles and then pump new oil in and call it good. Unless the covers are leaking and it's something we need to pull the cover off and re-gasket and reseal with some RTV, or there's something else that we need to really get in there and inspect for, typically we can just drain and fill it, pump it out, pump it in. That's it. For the transfer case, drain and fill. There's going to be a drain plug on it, fill plug on the top. We always want to crack the fill plug first to make sure that we can actually get oil back into it and that it's not seized up or stripped out. And then you just simply pull the drain plug, put it back in, torque it, take that fill out, pump the new transmission fluid in there, call it good. When I say transmission fluid, your T-case actually uses ATF plus four. So we can use this from the dealership. The axles are going to use just a regular gear lube. And I don't know which type of transmission you have, but if it's a manual, it's going to be done just like the transfer case. You're going to pull the fill plug out, pull the drain plug, drain it, torque that drain back in there, and then fill it. Uh, manual transmission, you definitely want to use the Mopar manual fluid from the dealership. They're very sensitive if you use the incorrect gear lube inside that transmission. If you have an automatic, it's going to use the ATF plus four. Again, this should definitely be sourced from a dealership. We always want to use the factory fluids. Even if you don't want to get it at a dealer, you can still buy it on Amazon. Just get genuine Mopar fluid. Uh, the automatic is a little more complicated because the vehicle doesn't have a dipstick, so you have to purchase a special service tool. There's no drain on the pan, which I believe you can buy an aftermarket pan that has a drain plug, which makes future services a little easier. Uh, so the automatic's a little more involved, and of course there's videos and write-ups online everywhere you can shake a stick at to do it, but definitely do a little due diligence on that before you tackle that particular one. It's a lot more complicated than the rest of the driveline. So 
good luck to you, Bryce. I hope it works out for you. Try to tackle it if it's a do-it-yourself job and get some confidence by reading it in advance. I'm actually in the same boat. I just got the Tacoma a couple weeks ago, and the vehicle had just under 100,000 miles, so I went through and replaced all of the fluids from one end to the other just to have the peace of mind knowing that everything's fresh. Went and put a small two-inch lift, got the big ARB bull bar and winch up front. It's definitely ready for some off-roading. Subscribe to the newsletter on my website and also my YouTube channel. I'll have some write-ups coming in the next couple of weeks as far as running some power cables to the back and adding some of those accessories and being able to put the power box in the bed and charge it off of the truck. So stay tuned for that stuff in the next couple of weeks. Take care, guys. Now, next, instead of getting yourself a nice, new, shiny, semi-new car, you get yourself a nice, new, shiny knife. Or, like I said, this could be any tool, and it's made out of carbon steel, but it's nice and shiny. Well, anyone that's ever used carbon steel knows that it tends to rust, and we can use some oil on it to, to prevent that. In some instances, that's enough. But stuff that's used a lot, uh, like a knife, uh, it tends to be difficult to keep it from rusting at all. And usually, generally, you look and you see like an old knife's been around a long time. Over just general use, they tend to develop a patina, which is kind of like blue in a, a gun, in a way. Um, but we can do that a hell of a lot quicker. And that doesn't mean we can just not worry about rust, but it means that it's much easier to maintain a tool or a knife without rust uh, forming on it. So how do you do that? Patrick Gorman, well, he's going to tell you. Hey guys, it's Patrick Roman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Joel in Northwest Washington. Question for Patrick. What are some ways to achieve a patina on a new carbon steel knife that was received as a Christmas gift? Thanks for the question, Joel. Uh, for those of you who don't know, a patina is a layer of oxidation that will help prevent rusting on high carbon steel blades. So if you have a high carbon steel knife and you want to help uh, protect it from rust, you can put a patina on it. It will get a patina naturally over time, but a lot of times you want to speed that process up to uh, protect it sooner. So the first thing you want to do is clean the knife off really well. Maybe uh, scuff it up a little bit with some sandpaper, um, like 600 grit or something, you know, fairly fine. Just kind of clean the surface off, and then you want to wipe it down with some rubbing alcohol, get any oil that may be on the steel off. After you've wiped it down, you want to be careful not to touch it uh, with your fingers and get oil from your hands onto the blade. <clears throat> There's uh, several different methods that people use. Really common ones would be like mustard or vinegar, some sort of acid. Or you could just uh, use something like cut up some uh, chicken meat. Some raw chicken meat will... Uh, give it kind of a bluish color with the mustard sometimes people will uh, put patterns in the steel and kind of you know get creative with it so it's a pretty simple process different steels are going to take a patina better and quicker than others so you just have to give it a go if you put some say some mustard on it <clears throat> leave it on for 10 or 20 minutes and then wipe it off see what it looks like If it's not as dark as you'd like, you can leave it on for longer. Um, with the vinegar, 
sometimes people will heat it up, get it to uh, almost boiling, and then dip a knife in there, and that's a real quick way to get a patina on there fast. Leave it in for 10 or 20 seconds, pull it out, wipe it off. Uh, especially with vinegar and things like that, you want to make sure that you neutralize that acid when it's done. You clean it up, uh, rinse it real well, and you could even use something like ba baking soda to neutralize it, clean it up, dry it off real well, and then oil it. So thanks for the question, Joel. I hope this uh, answers your question, and I hope you enjoy that new Christmas present. Thank you. Stay sharp. This has been Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives. Have a great day. Next up, one of the ways that we can uh, dispose of money instead of retain it is to buy things that we don't need or buy the wrong thing. And, you know, I'm not a prude. I'm not a, a miser or what have you. I believe in uh, solid value to, uh, to price ratio on things. I believe in, you know, buying the best that you can. But one thing I'm really opposed to is impulse buys. Impulse buys to me are where most people make most of their mistakes, and today it's easier to do than ever. Uh, back when Dorothy and I were younger, especially when we had less than we do now, uh, I remember, for instance, one time we found this this really awesome like double butt chair is what she called it, and we really we really did want it. I think we went and looked at it three times and thought about it for about a month and a half before we went and bought it. We had the money to buy it. It wasn't like we were buying on credit or anything. Um, it is good to have kind of a policy. When it comes to major purchases and what Gary's going to talk about here is, you know, a way to develop your personal policy to prevent impulse buys and specifically bad ones. Hey, everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com and the host of my new podcast, Your Better Life. Go check it out. I have a lot of interesting guests where we talk about all things to make your life better and to educate us. That's the whole point of it. Learn something. Today, I want to talk a little bit about financial freedom, consumerism, and making better choices financially. Uh, it's things I discuss in my Simple Life Guide to Financial Freedom, my new book, and my also my book prior to that, The Simple Life Guide to uh, Decluttering Your Life, which are going to a whole different aspects of things that we do to screw up our lives and make it more complicated than it needs to be. I always recommend that book to people who are just being introduced to me because I think it's the most well-rounded. But I want to talk about what money is, and I've talked about this in the past, and it's money equals freedom. Right. So the more money you have, the more potential for freedom you can obtain. The more freedom you have, the less money it takes to maintain that level of freedom. Makes a lot of sense. Now, when it comes to our spending habits today, we're terrible. It's like our health. <laughs> we're losing the battle. We're the richest country on the face of the planet. Our poorest people are considered the richest 1% in the world. We have plenty. Uh, our problem's not having enough money in, in most cases. I would say in all. Again, our poorest are our richest, are the richest in the world. Our problem's spending habits. And it trickles down from our glorious federal government who, you know, spends like drunken sailors on port duty 365 days, 24 hours, seven days a week. I mean, they just don't stop. 
And we've kind of followed that pattern. So I've kind of created some checklists and things to do when it, when it comes to buying things. I want to, today I want to go over a checklist that I use every time I want to buy something. But prior to that, I want to get into credit cards. We need to get rid of our credit cards. Get rid of them, pay them off, be debt free. You can maintain and hold one, which I do, but I pay it off at the end of the month. So I bank my bonus cash points, which I dump right into my savings account. We'll get into that some other time. I talk about it in my financial freedom and decluttering book. Okay, here's my checklist every time I want to buy something on impulse. We all do it. Number one, do I need to have this? That should be the first question when you're staring at those shiny gold pumps or that brand new set of golf clubs that are, <laughs> even though you got three sets in the garage and you play like crap with all three, I know I'm a hacker. So do I need to have this? What problem will this solve for me? I look at everything, almost everything. Hey, I'm not perfect either. I buy stupid stuff here and there, but not very often. What will this solve? What can I use this? I always say, is this a tool? Can I use it as a tool to better my life? So when I go to buy a new laptop, I don't buy it to get on the internet to go on social media and Instagram and act like an idiot. No, I buy it for my business. I buy it because I'm a writer. I buy it because I run my, my website through it. It's what I use as a tool. So look at it that way. How will it improve or make my life easier? So if say, you know, my, my, my business, I run it remotely and I don't use a lot of technology, but I do have to use a smartphone. Well, the smartphone makes my life easier because I can check email, respond, text, do things I need to do for the business. Trust me. I want a flip phone. They're cheaper. They're, they're simple, but I can't run my business. So that even though that flip phone is a simpler device, it's going to hamper me and it won't make my life easier as opposed to the smartphone at this time. If I make a bazillion dollars, you're going to see the smartphone go right into the ocean or right underneath my truck tire. Guaranteed. All right. Do again, do I need it right now? Is it something that I need, but do I need it right this instant? Can I put this off till maybe I have a little more money? Maybe I'm in a better place if I'm struggling. Pretty straightforward, right? Uh, can I live without it? I mean, can I afford it? Uh, I'm sorry, can I afford it? Got out of order there. That goes right back to number four. If I, Do I need it right now? Well, can I, can I afford it? I may need it right now, but if I can't afford it, guess what? I can't afford it. That's just the way life works. Um, number six, can I live without it? I've done this a couple times recently. I was looking at something. I go, do I really need that? And then I, you know, I go, well, kind of, uh, can I live with that? Yeah, I can live without that. I don't need it. Number seven. And the last one will it just sit around and take up space. Oh. Those gimmicky exercise things that you're watching at 2 a.m. for 28 payments of 99.99. You know, it's the famous, uh, uh, what was it? Nordic track that became a towel rack, coat rack, clothes rack, place to put your shoes, you know, <laughs> fold blankets and put it on there in the, when you're not using them. I mean, 
there are a ton of items that will just that we buy and we put them we use them maybe once or twice and they just take up space so i hope that helps guys again i'll run through it real quick one do i need to have this two what problem will this solve for me three how will it improve or make my life easier do i need it right now number four number five can i afford it number six can i live without it number seven will it just sit up and take up space Hope that helps, guys. Gives you a little checklist to go through anytime you're getting ready to impulse buy something. I use it. Like I said, I'm human. It happens. I buy stupid, stupid things here and there, but I try to make it at a minimum. And if I do and I realize it and I get home, you know what I do? I go and take it right back and get my money back. Again, guys, go to thesimplelifenow.com. And if you're a fan of the podcast, make sure to leave a review on iTunes for me. You know, next up, what we have from Michael Jordan is the tools you really need for beekeeping. And I see this a lot when people get into a new hobby or a new pursuit or something like that, that all of a sudden it's, what do I need? And then, you know, the the Internet uh, hobby police for whatever that hobby is comes up, and everybody has an opinion. Next thing you know, you got a shopping list a mile long. You're like, man, I just wanted to keep some bees and make some honey and not kill them. So uh, what do you really need to do that? Michael Jordan will give you that right here. Well, hey, I'm Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company located here in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. Well, what tools does a beginning beekeeper need? This is a question from Mike T. from Mobile, I think, Alabama. He says, I see beginner kits with stuff like books, frame lifters, brushes, Special smoker fuel. This seems to be unnecessary and expensive. Can you give me a tip on what tools a beginning beekeeper needs? Thanks, Mike T. from Mobile. Well, Mike, as you get going into beekeeping, you will accumulate many tools and items for your beekeeping practice. Many kits are solid and sold. They're pretty good. They carry basic needs that will help you aid in your beekeeping. Some seem unnecessary, and many are expensive. So that's why many beaks build their own equipment and some of their own things to help them with their beekeeping. Saves you on the cost. And once you kind of get going and building jigs and equipment, you can pump out nooks, uh, breeding colonies, queen castles, and other things pretty regularly that you'll be needing. But after building hive stands and picking out the type of hive system that you're going to be using and the types of bees that you want in your hive, there are some basic tools that you will need. And I'm going to give you my top 10 that you're going to need for your beekeeping. So number one is you're going to need protection. If it is all buying a whole suit or using duct tape with long sleeve shirts and pants with a veil, you're going to spend some money on protection. I live in a full suit that is breathable. I'm sure uh, not to have any problems when I go out and use this. No matter what the job is, I'm always protected. You should have protection, and you should use it. You should get to use it, and you should become familiar with it so you know what you need at different times. I mean, sometimes I'm just out in a veil, and other times I'm fully suited up. 
And you'll get to know this when you work with your bees. But you're going to spend some money on it, and I'd get some good protection. Number two, gloves. Now, I have big hands, and I move slow, and with smooth, uh, you know, it's, it's like repetition when you do martial arts. Eventually, you become smooth with your flow. And I'm not one to get stung a lot, and when I do, it really doesn't bother me. But I would invest in some gloves, and I'd invest in a couple pair. Because when you get stung through them, it's going to take you a while to get the stingers out of some of the leather that these gloves are made out of. So get some good beekeeping gloves that fit your hands. So try on many styles and get the ones that you love to work with, that you're able to put on and off, especially when it becomes a hectic out at the bee field and you need to put them on or you need to take them off to grab something. So try on some gloves. Number three, of course, the hive tool. Now you can use a cat's paw from your toolbox, a nail puller, framing hammer. But you should get a good hive tool. And I would get three. Uh, you need to soak one in a cleaner like alcohol so you do not get mold or fungi transferred to other hives if you, in, if you have a problem. So I'd get a spare one, as guess is what I'm saying. And a hive tool is a must. Little quick tip. Put a magnet on the side of your hive stand or in your pocket of your bee suit. That way your hive tool will always be with you. You can just stick it there and you don't lose it in the field. Number four, a smoker. Now I have many smokers and my dad lives with two of them, one in each hand. But you need a smoker to work the bees. Many say that you don't need to use one, but I'm one on being safe and not being sorry. So get a smoker and learn to use some burlap, old jeans, dry glass, grass, and uh, light your smoker. Wood pellets work okay, but you have to get them hot. And you have to, like, keep them warm and, and they burn. And if you fall and you start a fire out in the bee field, you could ruin somebody's crop or their livelihood. So I'd check out some YouTube videos on smokers and how to keep them going. I'd work with playing your, your smoker, see how you can light it. See how long you can keep it going without any problems. And that way you don't burn down the field. Take some work. Work on a smoker. It's a good job. Number five, the hive stand. Now, not mentioning very, they're, you know, they're not mentioned very much, but a frame stand is something that I think you should get. And, uh, man, you want to work with frames, you get a little high, uh, a frame stand that hooks on the side of the hive, or build one that you're, that you're own, it's going to save you a lot from dropping the frames into the dirt, the grass, or leaning them up or something and squishing your queens or bees. Uh, you can buy one from a supplier or make your own and get a style that you might like for beekeeping. But I'm going to tell you, a frame stand is a lifesaver. And with a frame stand, I'm going to go with number six, a frame pulling tool. Now, it's not a must, but man, when it comes to having one hand free to pull a frame and one to operate a hive tool to loosen the frame, it makes you know life easy and quick. And being quick and smooth is a tool in itself. Because when you get good repetition where you can pull those frames out and put them on your frame stand, where you're not squishing queens or making you know a, a dire mess of sticky everywhere, these things are pretty necessary. 
Number seven is a queen catcher and marking device. Now, when you get to making your own queens and splits for hives to keep your populations going from losses, this device will save you from not squeezing your queen to death and marking them. And you should mark your queens. That way you know how long they've been laying and when you need to replace them. Or if your hive has swarmed, you'll be able to see if the queen that's in there is one that you put in there. Because in some areas, you might get a hot queen that's pretty nasty. And you might need to pull her and try to breed your own queens to replace her. Number eight, vaporizer for allic acids. The crystals and stuff that you need to treat your bees for mites. Now, very few hives, you know, do not have mites. I live in a cold spot, and mite treatment is not every month. But to keep bees, you will need a vaporizer to treat your beehives or some sort of system to treat your bees. And I'm telling you, OA is one of the best treatments for mites. Uh, if you do an alcohol wash, check your mite count, do your system, but I would get a vaporizer and I would try to start using it on a regular basis out of honey flow. That way you can kill your mites and keep your bees going. Now, number nine is feeding devices. Now, I would go with one that's outside your hive so you can see when it needs to be replaced without opening the hive. Now, in the winter, you'll be feeding bees, you know, when it's warm out. And you're going to feed your bees on piles of darth. But putting a nice feeding device that you can see and quickly change for your bees is a must. And when you're checking your bees every 9 to 11 days, which is the method that we teach, you'll be able to check and feed your bees and calculate how much feed you're using for your bees, which helps your cost. Now, in the wintertime, you're going to be feeding fondant, and there's another tip for you. Number 10, a notebook or recording device. Now, this is going to be a great tool for you to review in the off-season to see what you need, messed up on, and the statistics of your hives. Now, you may feel this is unnecessary, but you're going to learn from this, and you'll learn not to repeat on your mistakes. Now, there's one thing that I didn't mention, and I'm just going to throw it in there. I don't know if you need one. Some people use a turkey feather. Some people just use a little bit of grass off the ground. But you should probably get a bee brush. That way you can scrape the bees off the frames and not pound them, dislodging some eggs if you're going to do some grafting. So I'll throw that one in there as number 11 for a bonus for you, is try to get something to scrape the bees off the frames and use maybe, I use a turkey feather myself, but you can go ahead and get yourself a bee brush and that'll help you. But those are my 10 top tips for you for tools that you would probably need in your bee yard to keep you going. And they're not expensive, and some of them, you know, you can get a rain suit and duct tape and make a uh, Africanized bee suit that you won't get stung through. It'll be hot, but it's cheap. So there's a lot of things you could build on your own. But I think these are some good tips to get you started there, and I hope this helps you out, Mike. And uh, if you have any other questions, please send them in. But hey, smash that like button and share our YouTube page and showing our beekeeping, mead making, and urban gorilla living. Give us a heart on Instagram and support what we do with the kids and check out our upcoming events and news that we have on the homestead on our Facebook account. 
And when you're on Instagram, kind of check out what we do when we're starting a new program teaching sign language beekeeping. So that's something I want you to try to get out there and kind of learn yourself to get out with the deaf community. Hey, I'm your pocket beekeeper, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company here in Cheyenne, Wyoming, helping out where I can. Remember, get your honey from a beekeeper respect. Get it from a small biz and get a great product and help somebody out that's trying to do a good job. And if you ever have any problems, such as myself, remember, reach out and help your fellow man. Because one day, you're going to need some help too. Next up, I got a twofer with John Pugliano, and this is like two different ends of the spectrum. We have a father asking about career opportunities for his uh, his his son, who's getting into kind of that range where you need to start really thinking about that and deciding what you're going to do to get into a career, uh, with some considerations a lot of people generally don't look at. Then you've got the complete other side. Older gentleman, nearer to retirement, looking at how to wisely invest his hard-earned dollars. With that, John, take it away. Hey, TSP, I've got a couple questions I'm going to answer for you today. And normally I like to consolidate and merge questions. For today, I actually wanted to tackle two questions that are totally opposite, have nothing to do with each other. In fact, they're absolute polar opposites. The first question involves a young man that's a senior in high school. The question comes from his dad, Mike. And Mike is asking about career opportunities and educational direction for his son that's you know soon going to be entering the workforce. What I really like about Mike's question is that he's focusing in on three key areas. Number one, he's looking at his son's unique personality and innate abilities, and he's trying to match that with what the marketplace is likely going to want in the future in terms of you know automation and robotics and all that revolution that's going to be coming to the workforce. And at the same time, he's also looking at this from a lifestyle and a geographic location because his son would like to stay in the area of western Montana where, you know, there's not a whole lot of people in population, so the jobs are few, but the lifestyle can be amazing. So first and foremost, as we look at this young man, he's a real hands-on, mechanical kind of person. He likes turning wrenches, you know, getting his hands dirty. He's an outdoorsman, likes to fish and hunt and trap. But he's also been dual enrolled at their local university. They have a, an associate IT and networking program. And the young man's going to graduate from high school with that certification as well. And I'll tell you, Mike, I think your son is going to be really well positioned for the robotic future because he is both skilled in terms of mechanical aptitude where he can work with his hands, but then also having an understanding and an education in the software side of things and in computer networking. And the reason that is so important is because as we go forward, that's what we're going to see all the integration take place. It's going to be the integration between the digital and the analog. And I think it's going to be hard to find skilled people that can work in that interface. So, so far, I think your son is coming out of high school with a good background, a guy like your son. I mean, he sounds like a manly man, you know, a micro kind of dirty jobs guy. Those people are few and far between, and employers are having a very difficult time finding people that not only want to do those kind of things, but also are skilled and able to do them. And it sounds like your son has the personality and the motivation and the technical aptitude to do those kind of things. And the good news is, is that even though he wants to live kind of up in the, you know, the wilds of Montana, there can still be a lot of opportunities there, especially if he's willing to live within a commuting distance 
of an area where there's a major city or a transportation hub. I mean, you look throughout the state of Montana and even in the western side of Montana, it's remote, but there's still a lot of infrastructure out there. I mean, there's cities, there's airports, there's hospitals, there's power generation facilities, there's military bases, there's national parks. Glacier National Park has an international airport. All those transportation hubs and areas where people live require infrastructure that needs serviced and maintained. You know, from a tradesman's side, that means everything from being an electrician to HVAC, electronics engineer. I mean, you need people to work in the refineries and on the gas pipelines, on the electrical grid, linemen. None of those jobs are going to go away with robotics because even when things are run by the robots, there's still going to be the need for service and maintenance of not only repairing the robots, but the whole overall infrastructure, the communication system, the cell phone towers, wind turbines. Things are going to get hit by lightning. There's going to be wildfires, uh, you know, snowstorms, tornadoes that come in and blow things down, need repair. Squirrels are going to chew through wires. Uh, you know, pipes are going to rust and need replaced. There's always going to be work for men that are qualified to go out and and merge both their physical skills where they need to have hands-on work and combine that with their ability to be mechanically and technically savvy. And I think all that can be accomplished even in western Montana. And the things I've been talking about are more of the, the skilled trade, but the same would be true even with a university degree. I mean, there's plenty of need for industrial engineers, geoscientists, petroleum engineers, pilots, physicians, surgeons. I mean, Montana needs all that as well. So, your son can really go in a multitude of directions. But I think the most critical stage right now is just getting that last little bit of education that's going to prepare him to enter the job force. And so I just encourage you to get him out, get him as active as, as you can, talk to people in career fields that he may be interested in. And now it's really just a matter of, of concentrating it down to which one of these areas of interest should he focus on and go get that final education in. So good job on being a father, Mike. Sounds like you've raised an excellent son. Now, our next question, 100% out of phase with the last one. This is about a man that's looking into retirement. He's on the other side of his career. His name's Gary. He was a government worker. He took retirement at age 57, but he's still working in another career. That job doesn't offer benefits or any retirement plans. He still has the majority and a nice chunk of money in the federal thrift savings program. That's the government's 401k plan. And he has a couple kids that are in college. They're going to be there for the next five years. I think he wants to continue working and not tapping into his thrift savings plan until he gets his kids through school. And so here's what he says. He says, I was thinking of taking my money out of the thrift savings plan and putting it with Merrill Lynch and have all my investments in one place. But he says, Merrill Lynch will charge a fee. Is this a good idea? Well, before I get into any of that, let's just real quick review what the thrift savings plan is. There's five main funds, and then there's a sixth fund, the L funds, which is just a composite of the other five. It's target dated, so the closer you are to retirement, you know, the more they move you into the fixed income and the bond portion of it. But the, the main five funds are the G fund, which is invested all in government treasuries, and it's essentially a stable value guarantee on your principal and designed to pay a little bit of interest and try and keep you ahead of inflation. The F fund is an aggregate bond fund. The C fund is nothing more than the S&P 500 index. The S fund is a small cap, a U.S. company small cap fund. The I fund is a mix of international stocks. 
Now, Gary mentions, you know, should he keep his money in the thrift savings plan or should he move it out? Well, you know, he's entitled to keep it there as long as he wants to. He mentions that there's no fees there and Merle Lynch is going to charge him fees. Well, you know, Gary, that's a part of your question that, that really worries me or at least concerns me. As far as the thrift saving plan goes, for what it is, it's excellent. If you're just interested in having your money split up between five mutual funds, then the thrift savings plan is is good for that. It's there for you. You can invest in large cap, small cap, international, or you can go into bonds or government treasuries, right? I mean, it covers those five main asset classes very well. And you mentioned that there's no fees. Well, there really is a small fee in there. There's a four basis points that's charged as a expense ratio. You can go look these up online. The average expense ratio for the thrift saving plans is stated right on their website. It's four basis points. If you go over to Vanguard, you look at their VOO, which is their S&P 500 index fund, they only charge three basis points. Charles Schwab the same way. Go look up uh, ticker symbol SCHB, that's Schwab's broad base S&P 500 large cap fund. It's three basis points. So actually a little bit cheaper than the government's thrift savings plan. Now, that's not enough of an incentive to switch. I think if you're happy, if you're managing your own money and you want to be in you know, three or four or five in, uh, index mutual funds, then that's a good place to be. But again, what, what worries me or, or concerns me about your question is you've really made this very binary because you've kind of said, you know, should you be in TSP or should you go to Merrill Lynch? And Merrill Lynch is going to charge you a fee. Well, you don't have to go to Merrill Lynch. You could go to Fidelity or Schwab or E-Trade or Vanguard. I mean, just about anywhere you go, the rates are all now so competitive. I mean, even in trading stocks, or ETFs, virtually all the transaction fees have been eliminated now from all the discount brokers. So there's really no fees anymore. As long as you're making your own investment decisions for yourself, like you are in the thrift savings plan, if you move your money over to E-Trade or Schwab or Fidelity or wherever, as long as you're still making your own decisions, you're not going to pay any management fees. So you have a lot of other options besides just a a fee-based account at, at Merrill Lynch. And the reason I mentioned that I'm concerned by your question is it's it's just that at your age and where you're at in your phase of planning for retirement, I would think that your questions would be much more directed to, to things like looking at the amount of assets that you have now and to what degree are they going to support you in retirement and are they, along with your Social Security and other t- any other type of pensions you may have, how is that going to all integrate together? to fund and support your lifestyle in retirement. And, you know, how long is that going to last? Is that going to get you till you're 70 years old? Can you make it till you're 90? Those are really the types of questions I'd be expecting for someone that's in your situation. If I've misunderstood your question or you want to rephrase it or you want to provide me any additional information, you can always get in touch with me through my websites, give me some more background, and I'd be happy to further engage your questions. For the Expert Council, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. Good advice from always from old man Pugliano. Um, next up, and I can call him old man. He's got like more grandkids than I got grandkids and kids put together now. So he's an old man. He's older than me. So he's old because I'm old. Anyway, so um, I got an email here on Crackhead Caponics from Brandon. Uh, Brandon says, uh, would using an external or secondary reservoir connected to your Kratky hydro system make it a little bit more set and forget? Uh, through self-leveling of the liquid. 
Uh, I heard you say that you're having to add more solution to your system while using a shallow tray than if it had in another container with solution only connected to a simple tubing would increase the volume of liquid without sacrificing the space under your grow lights. Um, for my particular system, it's not very practical the way I'm running it as a seed starting system. And what I've learned with the speed of the growth in the system that I came up with is I, I need to be putting seed into a net pot, the seed that starts well that way anyway so far, uh, maybe 14 to 15 days before I want to plant it. Now, I don't know how that's going to apply to peppers, but tomatoes in, in, in 20 days, my tomato plants are, you know, they were like, Four or five inches in nice stocky little starts. They were as big as a lot of times what you get at the store. And now, like five, six days later, they're touching the lights. I have two tomato plants that I'm pretty much going to murder because I have no place for them to go. And I, I really don't think we're going to get out of the, uh, the next couple months without at least one or two days well below freezing. So I, I don't know what to do with them, but they were an experiment. I need to know, like, what's the timeline on peppers? But I would say even peppers and tomatoes are going to be somewhere around 30 days. Uh, versus more like, you know, six weeks with a more typical starting in soil setup. So with that being the case, I might have to add a little bit once for a cycle for starting because this is not a growth system. The other side of it, though, is when you are doing full grow outs, depending on the depth of your reservoir, you may or may not need to add fluid. And if you're doing longer term crops and there are people that use Kratky aquaponic systems to do things like peppers and tomatoes you're definitely going to need to add some fluid to your system during that time because for those that haven't been listening lately Kratky aquaponics is the most simple form of hydroponics the most simple form of hydroponics that there is we basically take a container and we plant into a net pot or we take a started plant and we put it into that that is touching, barely touching, or significantly touching, depending on how we're doing it, the bottom of the net pot. Over time, the water evaporates, and you end up with a big root cluster in a humid area above the fluid, but you still have roots touching the fluid. And the roots get bigger and bigger and chase the fluid down, and that way you don't need a pump, you don't need to recirculate, you don't need air. And my experience so far is it works great. It is not without its challenges. Chiefly among them, when you're done with a growth cycle, and maybe with a short cycle lettuce crop, maybe two growth cycles, maybe for one cycle you could just top it back up with a solution and plant again, but somewhere within one or two cycles, whatever's left needs to go away. We need to clean out the reservoir, and we need to add new fresh fluid before we plant the next cycle. If you're growing, let's say, two four-foot by four-foot beds, Uh, in a, a greenhouse or a, a sun shelter or something like that outside, uh, it's not that big a deal. If you are growing lettuce in mason jars that you've wrapped up so they don't get algae, you dump it in the sink or you dump it, if you're smart, dump it in your house plant pots and stuff like that, right? I mean, it's, it's fertilizer. Uh, so and you clean out the jar and you start over and it's no big deal. If you're growing at significant scale, cleaning that system out is a pain. Okay, so if you're doing a lot of growth, it's, it's a lot of fluid, and it's, it's, it's in some ways wasteful because if we're recirculating it, our time between having to go ahead and replace is a lot longer, so we do it less often. 
So there's all of that involved with it. A solution to that is if you're you know if you're doing anything more than a you know a Rubbermaid container or something you can pick up and carry around like a grow table or something like that, go ahead and plumb it with a bulkhead and make sure you can drain it somewhere and it makes it really easy to just open a valve and drain it. Well, once you've done that, the primary thing you have to do to plumb it is done. So there's a couple things we can do. One involves that and one doesn't. I think that for larger tanks that makes sense. I would. I don't want to like bail out a four by four or four by eight or a two by eight bed. I don't want to do that. So even if you're using like you build it out of two by six plywood bottom or OSB bottom and line it with plastic, you can still put a hole through the plastic, hole through the wood, put in even a half inch bulkhead with a stand up pipe, and when you want to drain it, just pull the stand up pipe out. You could do that without even having a valve on the bottom if you wanted to. Right, so your stand-up pipe stays above the water level, and that way, if like rain or something gets in there, it will only go as long as it drains somewhere good. Just leave it at that. All right, so that's that's one issue we can kind of resolve there with being able to drain it. But whether you've set it up to drain or not, with just maybe you just have an overflow point, like you pop a hole through the side or something of whatever you're doing this with, you can always set up a float valve. Now, there's a couple different ways to do float valves with this. One, if you're going to use like an expensive float valve you buy from a store, which can be like 20 bucks or more, we take a small tank and we put the float valve in the small tank. And then from that tank, we run feeder lines to each big container. So we had a little tank, and each one of those the little tank feeds multiple big tanks. And whenever the water level of any of those tanks drops, as long as everything's on the same level here, it starts to fill the little tank, and the little tank fills the big tanks. That's one way you can do that. So you have basically an external float valve that sets the relative level to your other tanks. That's complex, and they all have to be level. A simpler way is to simply have a float valve inside the reservoir that you want to maintain. And you can still do cracky with that. So what we do then is we set it so the water's up at the level of the plant, and it does exactly what Craggy's supposed to do. It drains, 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 all the way down, all the way down, all the way down, and it gets down to where that's as low as we want it to ever be. That's where the level of the flow valve is. And it drops a little below that, it fills back up. Drops a little below that, it fills back up. Now we could have one big reserve tank, and as long as it's a foot higher than all the other tanks, you can just plumb a line to each float valve, individually, and that's really simple and it's pretty dead foolproof. The problem is if you have 10 tanks, $200 in float valves. Well, Dr. Kratke himself has come up with ways to make float valves out of things like pill bottles and make float valves for about a dollar a piece on his website, or actually on his YouTube channel. So I will put a link to that. So that's true Kratke with a float valve because you still have no recirculation. You see what I'm saying? All you're doing is saying, to hither thou shalt drop and no further. And for things like peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, etc., that makes a lot of sense. I'm telling you, for lettuces and stuff like that, um, if you're, especially if you're going to harvest the whole plant instead of doing cut and come again, which I think is probably the way to go with hydro, just harvest the plant, plant another one. It grows fast enough, trust me. Um, you probably don't need to worry about that. That's the beauty and simplicity of Kratky. If you want a system, though, where you can grow anything, you don't have to worry about it, and it's really easy to change out fluid, then you can basically do deep water culture Kratky. How would one do such a thing? Well, what one would do is you set the level in your tank with that stand-up pipe that we talked about at a level 
so you take that stand-up pipe and you just close it with a valve on the drain side. So it can be wherever you want it to be. It can be, you know, whatever the bottom is, all you just set the height of that stand-up pipe to where you want it. Now you take your brand new plants and you put them in there and you keep an eye on your fluid. That's the one thing you do have to, uh, to keep an eye on your fluid with this. And once that fluid gets down to that stand-up pipe, then you go ahead and open your valve and you have that valve drain back to your sump and then you put a pump on a timer. Instead of running it full time all the time the way they do in regular hydroponics, you could set that pump to run for 15 minutes once every four hours. Assuming that's enough based on your pump to actually fill it from as low as it's going to get between those intervals. So whatever that interval is, you set that interval and it'll keep bringing it back up. And what will happen is it'll overfill, but it'll run out your standpipe, which sets your top level and in your sump for, for 15 minutes. Let's say it takes five minutes to get the, the fluid level back up, takes that much out of your sump, and for the next 10 minutes it'll run as a recirculating system. You could even take a cheap aquarium pump with an air stone on it and put the air stone in your sump, and while the pump's running, you're pumping oxygen. Why not? It's already there. You have the same timer. It's an extra 15 bucks for that air pump. And now what you're doing is cracky with some minor recirculation. The beauty of this is, let's say, like right now I'm worried about storms coming in. That storms come in, power goes out. You know what happens to your system? Nothing. It can go for a week if you have a properly built system a week without power. And it'll just start working again when it comes back. And then the only thing you have to do from that recirculation, your sump is going to show you what your fluid in your entire system looks like. It's basically deep it's like I would call it intermittent deep water culture is what it is, okay? So all you have to do then is test that. Like what are my how much fertilizer do I have and what's my pH? And you add to it and you add fertilizer and you adjust it to your parameters and you can probably do that once a month if you have a big enough sump. You're not going to have you're going to have less algae issues, you're going to have improved growth and people would say, "Well, why do all that?" And not just go ahead and let it be constantly recirculating. Because I would rather pay to run that pump for an hour a day than pay to run it 24 hours a day. And I'd like the benefits of Kratky, please, as well. So you can do whatever you want. Again, I'll put a link to Kratky's uh, YouTube channel, and you can go through some of his videos and see how to make those pumps. I'll just do his whole channel. He uses a name like Danky Systems or something like that. I don't know, remember what the name of his channel is, but like it doesn't have Kratky anywhere, and it doesn't have his name anywhere on it. It's like, gee, I, I don't understand branding at all. Uh, I had to actually, I, I didn't even know it was his channel the first time I saw a video on it. Uh, Denki Solutions or something like that, right? So I, I listened to this video. That's pretty cool. And then I found a presentation that he gave, like with a PowerPoint. And I heard the voice. And I'm like, that's the same dude. That's cra Yeah, it's it's Dr. Kratke's channel. So I will put that up. So with that, we've wrapped up another episode. I uh, want to remind you uh, that if you like this show and all the diversity we bring you and all these different things and all these different ideas and all this different knowledge, you can help support us really, really easy. Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. I guarantee you, that you are going to do something in the next month or next week where you're going to buy something online. And you probably are going to use Amazon in the next week or month. And when you do, if you do your online shopping at TSPAS, you help us no matter what you buy. And you can see all the stuff I recommend. So instead of making impulse buys, you make informed buys. And 
Everything on tspaz.com that I recommend, I own it, I use it, I spent my money on it, or I wouldn't ask you to. Now, we've been talking a lot about hydroponics. We've been talking about a lot about seed starting. And automation is great. The most simple, dead simple form of automation on the planet is a mechanical timer. Because it's on and off. It's binary. It's either on or it's off. Remember what I said about that pump running 15 minutes every three hours? Exactly how would you do that? Well, you get an Adreno and a Raspberry Pi. No, you get one of these for $9. And you push down one pin every three hours for 15 minutes. You want to do four, you push down one pin every four hours for 15 minutes. You want to run it 30 minutes twice a day, push down two pins at 12 and two pins at the other 12. If you, if you don't care what time of day that is, you don't even have to set the time. You do want to set the time because you actually want it to, like, my fish tank lights come on at, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning and they go off at 6 o'clock at night. Well, if it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you just turn it to 2 p.m. There's a little thing, 2 p.m., turn it to 2 p.m., little wheel. Anybody can do it. I hate timers. I hate You guys think I'm all technology-based and all? In some ways, I am. I hate a lot of technology. I hate printers. I hate fax machines, which hardly you have to use anymore. Uh, in fact, I haven't used a fax machine in 10 years. But I hated them when, they, when I had to use them. I hated printers. I hate fax machines. And I hate freaking timers. Timers should be the simplest thing in the world, and they're all a pain in the ass, except this one. You can't not figure out how to work this one. I'm telling you, as soon as you look at it, oh, that's how it works, you can do anything you want, any kind of schedule you want. Your only limit is each thing is a 15-minute block, which means you can put 12 on, 12 off, 12 hours on, 12 hours off, or you can put 30 minutes on and 20, 23 and a half hours off. You can do whatever you want, but that's your only limit is the off or on increments are 15 minutes, and I don't know that you need more precision than that for most things. At eight to nine bucks a piece, let me tell you, they're worth it because you will forget to do things that you should do. Like, I'll just turn the lights on in the morning and off in the evening. Yeah, no, you won't. Uh, another great thing they are for is putting lighting in your chicken coop or your duck coop to extend lighting, to extend laying through the winter. I don't do that, but if you want to, there is no easier way to do that than this. Anyway, you can find it at TSPAS. You can find it in the Daily Mail. You can find it on the website today at the main page. You can find it at tspaz.com where you can always help us no matter what you buy. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day is by ELO because we're an electric light orchestra week. This song is called Living Thing. and I, what, I, I, I'd heard this song before. I, I, I wasn't a huge ELO fan, but I liked him, you know. Um, but I'd heard this song before. I really never paid much attention to it. Just, no, it's a decent song. Um, I will say this. came out in 1976. If you had never heard ELO in your life, and somebody played this song for you about 15, 20 seconds of it, and said, what era is this from? You'd go 70s. Like, this is as, as much classic 70s as you can get, all in one. But it's called Living Thing. And it stirred up controversy. People got all ass heard about it. Some people thought... It was an anti-abortion song, and some people thought it was a song about losing virginity. You know what it's about? Losing a love. That's all it's about. The guy that wrote it just said, well, everything kind of rhymed, so we just did it that way. I have no idea where the hell all this craziness came from. That's all it was about is losing a love, and that love, having a relationship where you love someone, that part of the relationship that is love between the two of you is kind of like a living thing, and it's a terrible thing when you lose it. Interesting. Anyway, with that, I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. If you are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area or east of us into, like, Louisiana and further, keep your head up this weekend. Right now we have storms bearing down on us. I expect them to be here very, very shortly. Uh, and uh, and so we got our powders, right? And we're, we're paying attention, and we have our tornado-safe spot and all that stuff. 
I think as bad as this is going to be for Dallas-Fort Worth, the further east you go of the I-35 corridor, the worse it's going to get up into Oklahoma, Arkansas, eastern Louisiana, etc., And then going into Saturday, continuing eastward, this is a pretty nasty system blowing up right now. You guys stay alert for that. Otherwise, have a great and productive weekend. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You can see from your worst day I'm taking a dive